And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, January 30th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, this group of federal employees would like a thing or two from Congress. Plus, defense health officials expand research into traumatic brain injury. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, veterans and their families should have an easier time accessing military service records. That's because the National Archives and Records Administration says it eliminated a pandemic-era backlog of requests at its National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Now NARA is looking at digitizing decades of its paper records on veterans and looking at how artificial intelligence can expedite requests. For more, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with archivist Colleen Shogan. It took a a major effort from our staff at the National Personnel Records Center, and that's the bottom line to this story. They worked the weekends, they worked overtime, they worked on federal holidays, and their willingness to go the extra mile to eliminate this backlog was really what made the difference. All right. And in terms of the amount of overtime that it took and that went into this effort here, do you have a sense of how much overtime NARA staff put into this? I couldn't really give you uh, an exact number of hours that were worked, but I can tell you this, that every weekend when it was possible, we would authorize the overtime for people to be able to work. And there was not a federal holiday that went by where we weren't also allowing people to come in to work away and chip away at the backlog. But that was not required overtime. This was optional and people chose to want to do it so that they could could be part of this effort to eliminate the backlog. And I understand that Congress put up some pretty substantial appropriations to help out with these efforts. I understand that the Technology Modernization Fund also put up some money for some related work on this. How essential were those funds to doing everything that went into eliminating that backlog? The Technology Modernization Fund was critical because that helped to improve the application on everybody's computers that processed the requests coming in from veterans and enabled more requests to be handled in any given hour of any given day. It increased the bandwidth and the power of that application, which allowed the backlog to be eliminated much quicker than it would have been otherwise. So that was a critical piece of support that the National Archives received from Congress to get this done. And I understand that a lot of this modernization work and technology that you guys were using was not just to eliminate this backlog, but it's been a little more forward-looking as well, specifically the digitization work. Can you tell me a little bit more about the focus of that digitization work? I understand that as of now, most NPRC records are still only available in hard copy. That's correct, because there's, you know, uh, millions and millions and millions of of veterans records that we need to work through. But we have partnered with the Veterans Administration, and we are working backwards in time, starting with most recent veterans who have paper or analog records, and working backwards to be able to digitize military records so that if there is another emergency in the future, hopefully not something on the scale that we experience with COVID, but if there is, we will be ready. Ready to serve our military veterans because we will have those records digitized and they will be able to be accessed through an online program and we can continue
continue service to many of our nation's veterans if this would ever happen again. This has really made the National Archives better prepared and will improve service to veterans for decades to come. VA has been a partner in a lot of this work. Can you tell me a little bit more about, I guess, the Division of Labor? Because obviously you guys have the physical records and naturally VA is the one providing service to veterans. So in terms of that tag team effort, how did things break down there and what help did you get from the VA? He got a lot of help and support from the VA and predominantly through digitization efforts because it's much quicker and faster for the VA to help us with the digitization of records, which keeps our staff and employees free to be able to do the response to the requests that come in. So that's been the division of labor. And that's what we're going to do going forward. As I understand it, the Veterans Administration is going to continue to request funds so that we can continue continue digitizing at this pace or possibly increase the pace. You said that NARA is working backwards on those digitization efforts and that the newest cases that are coming in are the the first to be digitized. Is there a a rough timeline of how long this project is going to be going on for, uh, recognizing that you guys have a lot of records? It will take decades to digitize all of the military records. But as you can think about the whole history of military records, when you start to go back at a certain point in time, such as, you know, uh, before World War II, then you start to hit records that sometimes are used by genealogists, by families, by historians, but are not used usually in a way to obtain benefits for living veterans or recently deceased veterans. So really what we have to get through is the past 40 or 50 years of veterans records where people are still accessing the benefits. And once that is done, that will be the bulk of our requests will be in digital format and we'll be able to respond much, much quicker and much more efficiently. Right now, one significant thing that NARA is able to do now that this backlog is no more is that the time to fill these requests request from veterans who are looking for the records that is now at a much lower rate. Can you tell me a little bit more about the current level of service that NARA is able to provide to them? Absolutely. Most of our requests from veterans are filled within seven days of when you submit the request. And we are now on pace to respond to almost all requests within 20 days. So that is the time frame. If you're asking for a a more straightforward request, such as your DD-214, you can expect in most instances to have that within seven days. Other requests, you know, that might require a little bit more information and investigation of the records, up to 20 days. And that is the pace that we are on now that the backlog has been eliminated. And we plan on maintaining that pace going forward. And in terms of keeping that pace, as you said, going forward, what additional steps is NARA taking to you know, make sure that that is the pace of what it can do to honor these requests going forward and what NARA can do to avoid future backlogs? One thing that we're doing that will, I think, improve service and even maybe in the future shorten wait times is that we're doing pilot projects to explore the role of artificial intelligence or AI in helping us fulfill the easier requests the veterans might have. And the way that we're doing that is enabling an artificial intelligence to be able to look at a veteran's digitized record or born digital record and be able to locate the one piece of information that the veteran is seeking, usually, once again, the DD-214 form, be able to pull that form 
form out of the larger record and then deliver it to the veteran via email. And we have experimented with that in a pilot process. It's been very, very successful. And eventually we will roll that out in larger scale. And once we do that, that will enable our very talented staff to focus on some of the requests that are a little bit harder to fulfill. And then the wait time for those requests will go down as well. If I could be a little more forward looking again, obviously this work that you just described with the AI pilot that is ongoing. Uh, As far as other modernization efforts, can you tell me a little bit more about the current status of the TMF funds that NARA received? Is that still going on with uh, the case management work there? Um, and, And if so, can you just tell me a little bit more about how that's going to be valuable? Well, we are uh, replacing our case management system. That technology modernization fund was used to improve that system when we were working on the backlog. And now we're at the point where we will be able to actually replace that case management system with a new system that will be more efficient and more effective. And now that the backlog is cleared, we feel as though that is the time in which we are able to make that change and we will do so. So there will be a period of transition there when we switch from one application to the next, as there always is in large-scale systems. But I think in the long run, that the new system will much better serve our nation's veterans and certainly will help our staff fulfill requests on a much, much faster basis. Going back to the digitization piece of things, obviously that's key to the faster turnaround to fill requests. But I guess... It also is valuable from like a preservation point of view, because as we've seen historically, you know, fires happen, floods happen, a lot of unforeseen things happen to paper records, and it can be very difficult, if not impossible, to retrieve those records. So in terms of that value proposition, what are you guys looking to get out of the digitization work that you're doing? Absolutely. I mean, my own father's military records from the Army post-World War II were unfortunately destroyed in uh, the fire. So uh, I understand firsthand what happens to records if they fall victim to some of these unfortunate circumstances that take place. So through digitization, we will be ensuring preservation. And most importantly, it will enable people that across the country to be able to gain access to their families' records. Some of the records that are packaged in a certain way, the Navy records are sort of packaged together in a brick. And Once those bricks are untangled and then they are digitized, it will be much, much easier to be able to view those records wholesale than what we actually have right now in the analog or paper format. So for ease of use and also for generations to come, this is the right step to take. Yeah. And you were mentioning the kind of two-tier system of simple requests and complicated requests. Can you give me a a better sense of what those complicated requests sometimes look like and how they're a little more difficult to complete? You know, we have uh, recent legislation that has become law uh, that is providing benefits to military service members who served in certain locations, such perhaps near burn pits. And in order to be eligible for those benefits that the law provides, then you have to be able to look through the record. It wouldn't necessarily just appear on your summary service record. You have to look further into the record to see where the military service member actually spent time throughout his or her career. So that would be a, a, you know, potentially a more complex request. Also, some of the medal qualifications have changed over time. And a service member might have not qualified 
for a medal 10, 15, 20 years ago, but now those qualifications has changed and the person is applying for consideration for the medal. This actually happened to my uncle who served in World War II in the Navy, and he was not eligible for certain medals when uh, he actually was discharged from the Navy. But then many years later, he was eligible for medals, but that required an actual examination of his records in order to prove his service and his eligibility. To kind of bring it full circle here, it's not just significant that NARA completed this backlog, that it eliminated it, but that it eliminated it pretty close to the timeline it gave lawmakers. I think the last I read up on this, December 2023 is what you guys were looking at. And here we are in in January. Uh, That's pretty spot on uh, as far as an estimate in terms of getting that done. It seems pretty significant that you pulled it off. It was. And we have very good leadership at the National Personnel Records Center. I personally tracked the uh, weekly progress of the center on the of the backlog reduction. So I would get the numbers every week. If there was, if we had projections for every week. And if we were off the projection for any reason, I would inquire why. And if there were ways in which I could help, then I did. So it was a lot of vigilance from our leadership. But once again, it was the people who actually do the work, the people who fill those requests, our archivists and our archivist technicians who actually came in and did the 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 extra work and got it done. They were also, uh, just to keep in mind, there were new requests coming in. So they had to keep up with the current workload in addition to making sure they worked through that 600,000 request backlog. So it was no small feat. Colleen Shogan, Archivist of the U.S. and Director of the National Archives and Records Administration, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, defense health officials expand research into traumatic brain injury. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Brain injury, whether sustained at a test firing range or in battle, has long been a priority for the defense medical system. The Warfighter Brain Health Initiative this year has boosted its research efforts on service members' cognitive abilities and how certain events can threaten those. For an update, we turn to the director of Warfighter Brain Health Policy, Kathy Lee. Ms. Lee, good to have you with us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Brain injury, traumatic brain injury has long been a focus, obviously, of defense health programs. But you now have this Warfighter Brain Health Initiative, something new. Tell us what you're trying to accomplish here. Sure, sure. So the department's top priority is to take care of our people, which includes promoting brain health and countering traumatic brain injury. And as you just mentioned, we've been a world leader in the area of traumatic brain injury or TBI um, care and research. And as we've been since the beginning of the Afghan and Iraqi conflicts, and during that time, we really noticed that we needed to expand our efforts beyond just injury, but to expand those efforts to look at brain threats. And that's really how the Warfighter Brain Health Initiative, or WBHI, was born. This is a a real thing. Um, It's a joint effort between operational and medical forces, and its focus is really to optimize brain health. And we, we are looking at brain health through the lens of optimizing cognitive and physical performance. So we're really looking at thinking skills. That's very important for warriors, uh, war fighters, service members. And so we have a big focus on that and how it gets impacted by threats in the environment, such as blast overpressure, um, training with munitions and, and, and such. 
And then all the things that we're doing related to traumatic brain injury is now under this umbrella of warfighter brain health so that we can maximize coordination efforts across the department. And relative to some of the earlier issues that you continuously deal with, that is injuries in battle from concussions or shots or whatever the case might be. This sounds like it kind of brings together a bunch of concerns, including what can happen in training, in firing not even live rounds, but nevertheless, there's a blank, which is right next to the soldier or the airman's head, whatever the naval person's head. What are some of the other factors of brain threat that you need to look at? Firing munitions and training. The training environment is one that that we really have a, an acute focus on right now and awareness to so that we can um, understand better the health and performance brain effects from firing various weapons, either, as you mentioned, live fire or, or in training scenarios. So what we're really trying to get after is three things. We want to be able to monitor that brain threat. We want to be able to document the brain threat, and we want to instill safety and mitigation efforts to try to avoid unnecessary blast exposures if, 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 as the threat we're talking about right now. But there's other threats we're looking at too, such as you know repetitive head impacts and other things that can really um, um, have some type of impact onto your brain health based on what you're doing in an operational environment. Is there a way to monitor and measure what is going on without having an actual brain subjected to it. That is to say, if a particular, say, shoulder-fired weapon produces a certain concussive and sound proportion that's measurable, can you see what it does to a bowl of jello, for example, instead of what's happening with someone real? So we've just completed a pretty large initiative over the last four to five years, um, the congressionally mandated initiative, actually, um, where we looked, we did multiple studies looking at what the health and performance effects are. There have been numerous, what, what you're describing is preclinical, not using human beings, but rather preclinical studies that have looked at what the effects can be on the brain tissue, um, on in the blood, and looking at different areas within the blood. Um, and then in our human studies, looking at the symptoms and, and how it's affecting the person from, in this case, again, um, blast overpressure. But it is noteworthy that the Warfighter Brain Health Initiative is not just looking at blast as a brain threat, but other other things within our operating environment in the U.S. military that could have effects on brain health. And so we're very astute and attuned to those. What are some of those? So repetitive head impacts. Um, that's another area. If you are head, getting your head hit many times from jumping out of uh, airplanes and, and, and various other maneuvers, we're also looking at other threats such as um, directed energy threats and, and things that could affect the central nervous system based on that. Um, so and, and we're also looking for emerging threats, things in a future fight, future warfare that may end up impacting brain health in training environments or through enemy action. And a few years ago, I was reading about brain health in respect to NFL players. And sometimes there is damage that can only be discerned through an autopsy when the person is deceased and they section the brain and so forth. Have there been advances in the ability to measure the brain of a living person such that you can maybe get a finer grained sense of what's going on with someone than we could in the days when you had to section a deceased person's brain? Sir, a great point. Um, looking at the long-term and late effects from both repetitive exposures and numerous injuries is 
is one of our lines of effort. It's actually line of effort four in our plan. So we have a lot of activities and we're accelerating for exactly that purpose that you just said is not to wait until somebody's deceased and you're looking at postmortem tissue, but rather trying to see how we can signal this early on and therefore intervene and be able to provide some treatments. So that's a very active line of research. I can't tell you today that we we have that for somebody, um, you know, we're still looking at those brain tissues and understanding, but we are looking at some novel, some other novel ways to be able to pick that up in living folks. We're speaking with Kathy Lee, Director of Warfighter Brain Health Policy in the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs. And what are some of the ways that you measure people through these series of tests and say what's going on in the environment? You mentioned there is a performance issue, a cognition issue, and then that might be distinct to some degree from whatever might be the pathological issue. And what are some of the measures of the cognition and performance that don't involve looking at tissue? Great question. So as I have pointed out, cognition or thinking skills is the main um, indice right now that we're looking at for brain health. So are you brain healthy? We're looking at your cognition and we're really trying to get that on par. As people know, physical performance is very highly into our culture in the military. And we are working to get the cognitive thinking parts to be on par with that physical performance. So that being said, the cornerstone of this program of Warfighter Brain Health for the department is a cognitive monitoring program. So we are beginning um, this summer to to perform a cognitive test. We've been performing cognitive tests since 2008 on all those that we're going to pre-deploy. And now we're expanding that requirement to, to perform cognitive testing on everybody in the military every five years. So that will be our benchmark to baseline cognition, and that provides us the opportunity to either enhance it and, and improve it, or even to, to restore it if it's been decremented by some of these brain threats that we've been talking about. Do you ever look at, since given the population that tends to populate the military at the training and infantry and naval warfare and frontline levels, young people, mostly young men, but young women now increasingly, and the effect of having their ears plugged with music all the time to a greater extent than anyone in human history as as maybe adding a little bit of marginal effect on what they're getting in training. So interesting that you asked that question because the initial military training sites is exactly where we're starting with the cognitive monitoring program. So I can't answer your question about the music and um, that per se, but we are going to be starting that program, as I mentioned, uh, next summer or this summer, 2024, with the initial military training sites so that we can ascertain baseline cognitive measures as you enter into the military. And then again, we'll get the rest of the force so that we can ensure we have a baseline on everybody. That includes the guard and the reserve components as well. And every five years, that'll be checked for that intervention time so that you can either enhance it or restore it. And do you exchange information or testing methodologies or, or data with, say, organizations like the NFL or the NHL or, I don't know, Worldwide Wrestling Entertainment? So we have a, a very productive and longstanding relationship with the NCAA. That has probably been our, our one of our prime partners in this um, in this uh, inquiry and endeavor to look at brain health and exposures. Um, as I mentioned earlier, they, we look at sports-related concussion 
and repetitive head impacts. Um, so that is another threat as well. So we have partnered very uh, nicely and effectively with the NCAA. We do have some some work that we've done in, with the NFL um, through this tw over 20 years of really leading the world in traumatic brain injury related um, uh, research and care. And is there a feedback mechanism for what you're learning to say the people that develop training doctrine or to the people that develop the uniforms, the head protection, whatever baffles might be on weapons, that kind of thing as well? Yes. the train. So this, this really takes a, a big community throughout the department and partnerships with other federal agencies, um, with industry, academia. It, it really does take a true partnership. I've already alluded to one with the NCAA. Um, within the Department of Defense, we traverse, this plan goes across more than 16 different areas within the Department of Defense. So we work closely with our safety offices, the operational units, Special Operations Command, uh, Explosive Ordnance Disposal. So various places, our clinical communities, our education and training as well. So we are tightly yoked with the uh, the trade-out community, um, ensuring that we've got some curricula and training that reflects what these best practices and what we're learning. But I, I, I want to also mention that the single source of information for Warfighter Brain Health can be found at the Warfighter Brain Health Hub, which is at health.mil slash brain. So that is the one-stop shop, if you will, for all the things that we're learning related to research, clinical care, operational, low-level blast exposure. I could go on and on. Um, but health.mil backslash brain is the single source of information for warfighter brain health. Kathy Lee is director of the Warfighter Brain Health Policy in the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me and having an opportunity to talk about this very important topic. Appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, for contractors, a lot to ponder five months into the fiscal year. But first, this group of federal employees would like a thing or two from Congress. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, here on Federal News Network. While the threat of a partial government shutdown still looms, one group of federal employees has a message for Congress. Find a way past it. That's in part what concerns federally employed women, or few. More now from the group's president, Pamela Richards. Ms. Richards, good to have you back. Good morning, and thank you for the opportunity. Glad to be here, Tom. And few is saying, and you're saying, that a government shutdown doesn't necessarily affect everyone equally because women have concerns sometimes that men don't. Correct. Absolutely. Well, tell us more. Yes. So with the government shutdown, uh, it affects women because some women with the single parent households, they are affected by possibility of furlough, possibility of not being able to take care of their financial responsibilities, not being able to take care of their child care uh, for, their, for their child. So it affects a lot when it comes to our, our women and, and our membership. So what's your message to Congress then? What would you have them do? So one thing we would like for them to do is, as you've already stated, is to move past it and pass a budget that will allow for us to continue to work as uh, federally employed women. 
Last fall, few submitted a request to Congress imploring them to act on one of their options to end the entire annual government shutdown process. And at that time, there were several uh, avenues put forward to get rid of those temporary stop gaps, get rid of the whole shutdown conversation. And obviously that did not happen, but we would love for a bipartisan agreement to take place to end the government shutdown. And I cannot speak for all federal managers, but I am certain that many would agree with me on this, or federally employed women on that. And a lot of federally employed women are not managers, and therefore they are at the lower levels of the pay scale. And that's much more disproportionately difficult for people that don't earn that much to be out of work, even though the paycheck will come eventually. During the time there is no paycheck, it can be really difficult. Right, right. And those that are at, well, let's just say the bottom of the total pole, but you're lower level GS workers, this has created uh, a heavy financial impact on them, a burden for them as it relates to having to worry about a government shutdown from year to year. And now, of course, the government will be in a fresh continuing resolution, this one lasting till March, operating under the CR year after year. That's, I think the general public doesn't understand why that's difficult for those trying to keep the government operating on a day-to-day basis. Tell us how it affects things. I'll look at it from a human capital piece. Every day, the federal government employees work hard to run the operations, and regardless of the political climate, putting their livelihoods on the line is unconscionable. There are two different deadlines that are affecting two sets of workers, and they are associated with budgets. This creates major inequities as you watch uh, operations unfold. In the shutdown, federal agencies must uh, discontinue all non-essential discretionary functions until funding legislation is passed and signed into law. Essential services continue to function, as do mandatory spending programs. So shutdowns force agencies to draft and redraft budget plans. These are not minor undertakings. We all talk about eliminating waste and wasteful processes. No one is talking about waste of time and other resources that comes with these financial gymnastics we do whenever we approach a government shutdown. Now, the CR, though, means that you can't do anyhow what you had budgeted for and spent all that time planning for in the 18 months prior to when you thought a budget would start. But instead, you got a CR. So you're kind of operating like last year. Correct. And and this takes the government out of the opportunity of competing and saving on different services and resources by not being available, not having those funds available. And so what else is on Fuse Mind these days? Well, Fuse Mind is, is, is preparing our membership and uh, being able to listen to our membership and what issues that concerns them. Uh, being able to share with uh, congressional representatives that, you know, when women have lost their jobs, even in a uh, temporarily a greater risk of other things could happen, such an increase in gender-based violence, struggles with their mental health if they're out having to worry about work. Many women are running, like I stated earlier, single-parent households, and there's no safety net for anyone that's living from paycheck to paycheck. So we're looking for the government to, you know, continue to work toward a bipartisan agreement, Right. And do it quickly and not put the jeopardy in the lives of our membership or federal employees with not being able to receive their paychecks from uh, year to year. Pamela Richards, a supervisory analyst at the Government Accountability Office, is president of federally employed women, FEW. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Tom, as always, we appreciate what you do to support federally employed women and getting our voices out there. Take care, sir. All right. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come. 
For contractors, a lot to ponder five months into the fiscal year. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Things are moving fast on the federal procurement front. New small business rules, GSA data gathering to club contractors with, all while appropriations seem to be forever in the future. We get some perspective now from federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And Larry, let's start with the small business rules or the rules that are coming from the Office of Federal Procurement Policy to change how the IDIQs work for small business. What's your take? Tom, I think that the change coming from the Office of Management and Budget, where they are going to implement the rule of two for task orders against all multiple award IDIQ contracts, except the GSA schedules, is potentially a big deal depending on the size of your company. Uh, On the face of it, it's obviously a big deal for small businesses because now if you're on one of these multiple award IDIQ contracts, the onus is going to be on the buying agency to come up with justifications to not give you task orders up to the simplified acquisition threshold, currently $250,000. If you're a very large business, this isn't probably going to have very much of an impact on you because your typical task order is always going to be way above $250,000. If, though, you are one of these middle-sized contractors, a kind of not well-defined term, uh, particularly one selling commercial items, this rule change could very well have a significant impact on your business. So think about companies on NASA soup. This could be a big impact on some NASA soup contractors. Uh, this could be a big issue for CIOSP4 if that contract ever gets into place, but especially the next iteration of what will be the product-based CIOCS contract. So it could potentially have a very big impact uh, this was come came out of OFPP in discussions between themselves and the Small Business Administration, and there just wasn't a lot of advance notice. Like, surprise, here we are. Uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a rulemaking, but before the rulemaking, the agencies still have the directive to act in this way. So basically then the mid-tier people that compete with official, quote-unquote, small businesses, and if there are two of them and the rule of two comes in, then you're out of luck, basically. Well, if talking, the conversations I've had with uh, my contacts in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, Tom, that's not supposed to be the intent of the directive. However, there certainly is case law in place already that suggests just that. It says that Small businesses are presumed to be able to meet the government's needs if they have already been awarded the base IDIQ contract. And I suspect that uh, protest lawyers will follow through on that if uh, agencies go in a different direction. Or agencies, if they want somebody, they can maybe tailor the requirements such that the rule of two doesn't come into play, I suppose. Agencies are given some latitude under this, uh, so it's not automatic. It's not meant to be automatic. Uh, I think how it's implemented, you know, this is brand new. The memo just came out a few days ago. So 
it's going to take a while to see how it's implemented. And it'll probably be implemented in different ways by different agencies. Uh, but it's not intended to be an automatic stop on uh, awarding task orders to other than small businesses, but it is definitely intended to switch the balance of power so that the presumption going in is in favor of small businesses. And will this possible memo or what could become a rule have a different effect whether you're selling services versus whether you're selling commodity-type products? Because I think the product vendors are the ones that might be more severely affected here. Tom, I think that's exactly right. I think that the nature of service buys, typically they're going to be over the simplified acquisition threshold uh, for all but the most modest types of programs. But if you're selling, say, uh, IT hardware and software, if you're selling uh, solutions that are through an IDIQ contract that is not a GSA schedule, you need to take a look at the OMB directive and strongly consider participating in the rulemaking comment process so that you're, you understand what the impact of this rule is on your business, uh, regardless whether or not whether you're small, medium, or even a little larger than medium. And you recently attended a webinar, I presume it was online, held by the GSA that's gathering all sorts of information on contracting, especially in the schedules area. And people were wondering what they are gathering for information, and sounds like you were surprised at how much they do collect. Well, Tom, GSA has talked about collecting data on transactional sales for a long time in one way or other, the idea being that they would actually use that information to look at driving lower day-to-day pricing on the schedules program. And we're kind of here. We're at that juncture right now where uh, GSA, whether it's through their transactional data reporting system, whether it's through uh, other elements of data gathering that they do through their 4P pricing tool, uh, GSA people are gathering a lot of information on what things actually sell for through the schedules program. And that's generally a good thing, so long as we can make apples to apples comparisons. But if you're a contractor, you need to be aware that if GSA is going to have a lot of data on its side when you're asking for that price increase, when you're asking for that contract modification, uh, you're going to want to have a lot of data on your side too so that uh, you can show why you believe your pricing offer is justified. Yes. In other words, they're trying to create some kind of objective way, which I guess they've been doing in some way for decades, of figuring out fair market value prices in an age when there's so much more data than there was in the 90s or 80s. Right. And, uh, you know, I, we've seen, I think, it, the schedules program, Tom, is a big schedules program. We've already seen the use of this data have an impact in ways that are both positive and, frankly, not so positive. I mentioned a moment ago that you want to make sure you're doing apples to apples comparisons uh, on things before you say that somebody's price is, is too high, prices, you know, your price is too high, you can't have this item on schedule. Uh, and Or conversely, this item that you already have on schedule, which we deemed to be a fair and reasonable price two years ago, we're not so sure it's fair and reasonable now. And if you want to keep it on schedule, you have to lower your price. You know, that's some of the stuff that's coming into contractors. And they're like, well, wait a minute, we had a deal. And now we don't have a deal. 
Uh, and you know, if you're a federal buyer and if you're a taxpayer, you certainly want the GSA to do its due diligence to drive down pricing. That's a good impact of this program. On the other hand, you know, any tool can be used in the way that it is not intended. Just ask me. <laughs> well, yeah, it's an old story. And all of this is happening in the backdrop of the clock once again ticking away toward a funding deadline now that we are, you know, a month away from the next one. I mean, these it seems like they're all far off when Congress actually passes each CR, but they creep up fast, especially with Congress not around that much in the next month. Uh, that's exactly right, Tom. I was actually kind of surprised, even though I followed this issue closely, to see last week you had major senators uh, saying that they weren't sure if they had enough time to do all 12 FY24 appropriations bills by the new early March deadlines. And in fact, if you look at the calendar, you can see why they feel that. You know, First of all, the House of Representatives was out all last week. Uh, so that week was gone in terms of trying to negotiate things. Uh, and then they're going to both chambers are going to be out for close to 10 days around the President's Day holiday in the middle of February. The net net of that is that we just don't have a ton of time for Congress to reach agreements uh, and then work to pass all 12 appropriations bills on their own, which is something that House leaders have said that they very much would like to do. Uh, throw into this the uh, discussion, debate over the southern border, whether or not the plan coming out of the Senate is acceptable to the House. Uh, and that's tied into this appropriations process as well right now. Uh, you, you have a lot of doubt. A lot of clouds are still on the horizon, even at this late part of the fiscal year. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, I thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Spending on government-wide acquisition contracts reached an all-time high in fiscal 2023. Now there's growing concerns that small businesses are missing out. Well, to help, the Office of Federal Procurement Policy is going to push agencies to make changes aimed at improving how much of small businesses participate on all of these vehicles. More now from Federal News Network's Jason Miller. And Jason, there's some, I guess, not formal rulemaking, but a memo out, huh? There's a memo that will turn into formal rulemaking. I think that was what was uh, Office of Federal Procurement Policy made very clear in this memo. But the memo really is telling agencies, hey, ahead of these changes into the federal acquisition regulation, here are things you can do today that we think will make a big difference. One of them is more on-ramps. Hey, when you when you make an award or a bunch of awards under these multiple award contracts, these government-wide acquisition contracts, and you know, Tom, every GWAC is a MAC, but every MAC is a GWAC. It's one of my <laughs> favorite sayings I like to say when it comes to acquisition. But all of them act very similarly, and there's a lot of concern about the small business participation. So you can have on-ramps now, one suggestion they're making. Another one, and this is a big one, is applying what they call the rule of two to these uh, multiple award contracts, meaning if two or more businesses are small businesses are qualified, maybe it should be set aside to a small business if you can find that they are, are going to be able to, to do the work. And then the third one, uh, big changes, and I think this is interesting as well, is 
Tom, we've talked about this over the years. There's big push from uh, this administration and the last two administrations, really, to use something called best-in-class contracts. And a lot of these GWACs and multiple-word government-wide acquisition-type contracts are considered best-in-class. There's 38 of them in all. And what OFPP is saying, listen, look at these first, but if they, you see that they're being detrimental in some way to small firms, uh, maybe you shouldn't use them. Maybe you should do a, more of a full and open type of competition. So big changes that the OFPP and, and the Biden administration is really pushing as part of this bigger uh, effort to increase the supplier base, the diversity of the supplier base of small businesses, and to really push more contracts and more money towards small businesses. And that rule of two, then, is really coming in big time, sounds like. That, that is a, one of the biggest changes that I've heard from several people. I know uh, you're talking to Larry Allen, a federal procurement expert, later on in your show. And, and he is really kind of up in arms about what this really means because it's unclear. Now, should everything be set aside for small businesses under this rule of two? Should it not be set aside? And I think there's some clarification that is much needed from the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. And I think maybe potentially will come out as they push through this rulemaking process. Now, time to be clear, the rule of two is something that We've been around for quite some time, you know, and, and one thing that we can tag back to is the Veterans Affairs Department got into a little bit of hot water several years ago about the rule of two because they were not applying it in the right way to their contracting. A lot of agencies do say, OK, well, if we can find two or more small businesses that are qualified, they can do the work, we should set it aside. However, that leaves a lot of subjectivity. And what I think what OFPP is trying is maybe narrowing some of that subjectivity because they want more agencies to consider small businesses as they're doing contracting. But but this is a big deal. Now, to be clear, another thing that I think we need to be clear about is this rule of two does not, and let me be clear about this, Tom, does not apply to GSA schedules, which saw a huge increase over the last few years in terms of the use by agencies. Yeah, why not the schedules? Because the IDIQs and those GWACs were supposed to be simplifying things, but now it sounds like it's the same rules no matter what type of vehicle you've got. There's a whole piece in part that I'm not going to try to try to explain because I'm no procurement expert, Tom, but it really goes back to how the FAR is written and some of the regulations and, and the way the schedules were, were created. Uh, a lot of the changes that we've seen in acquisition really don't apply to the federal schedules because they are supposed to be easier to use, you know, quicker to get the, the, the need met. So I think what we're seeing is is these GWACs and, and multiple award contracts outside of the schedules really have been the ones that have been taking up a lot of the small business concerns uh, versus the schedules, which routinely do 38% of all contract awards to uh, small businesses, spend more money with small businesses than really most other vehicles combined. So I think that's the other piece of this is that a lot of what the schedules is doing uh, is already small business friendly. Right. So that's why OFPP focused on multiple award contracts because of that very issue. And I think I think also they, they focused on this because of what they've seen over the past few years and the amount of dollars going to these best in class contracts. Uh, let me give you an example, Tom. Uh, HireGov, which is a market intelligence firm, they looked at the 2023 numbers and they said almost 55.8% of all awards went through some contract vehicle like GSA's Oasis, NASA's Soup 5. Uh, both of them saw records, by the way. Oasis saw more than $13 billion. NASA's Soup 5 saw more than $10 billion in sales, respectively. I just spoke with 
Stephanie Schott over at GSA. The GSA schedules, again, does not apply rule of two, but it's still part of this discussion. Saw $46 billion in sales in 2023. That's almost $5 billion more than in 2022. And Tom, one last set of numbers I'll give you. Uh, looking at best-in-class contracts, again, there's 38 of them in all. Dell Tech, another market research firm, found that about $54 billion, or 12.7% of all procurement, went through this, what they call BICs. And that was up from $37.6 billion in 2019. So as you can tell, Tom, a lot of money is going through these contracts. And at the same time, the number of small businesses are dropping. SBA found it in May that since 2010, they've seen about a 40% decrease in the number of small businesses receiving prime contracts. Now, again, whether it's uh, multiple work contracts or, or one-offs, the number has decreased. And I think Deltec even found 1,800 fewer small business contractors in 2022 as compared to 2020. So uh, the, these drops are all creating these concerns about why OFPP, the Biden administration, is really pushing agencies to do, to do more and make a lot of these changes. Right. Okay. And uh, so just to reiterate, then, this is a memo from OFPP to agency buyers to use the rule of two and so on to do whatever they can to get more small business. But there is formal rulemaking coming on this? There is. One of the things that OPP does say in the memo is that we will put out FAR cases of proposed rules, give people in in industry a chance to comment before we make this, quote unquote, permanent. And I think that's a good thing. As Larry Allen, I'm sure, told you, Tom, that he has a lot of concerns about how this was done and, and, and what this means in terms of the major changes that this could lead to in the way agencies use multiple work contracts, use government-wide acquisition contracts. And so I think that this that will be coming down the road probably later this year as, again, proposed rules, and then eventually final rules. Right. And all of this, of course, when there's no appropriations and agencies aren't starting anything new. But, you know, we'll see when that happens. We still have a few more weeks, but Congress is not in session for the entire time. And there's, I guess the other question here is this rule or this proposed change or this memo could have different effects on different segments. For example, if you're selling professional services, agencies can much more easily tailor the requirements, let's say, so that you can get the contractor you want as an agency. Whereas if you're buying the next 27 PCs or something to put somewhere, that's a different story. Commodity hardware. I think you're right in in many ways. And I think that's why there is kind of that out that OFPP gives agencies in this memo saying, hey, yes, use the rule of two, but it's got to be, you know, makes sense. It's got to be make sure that you are meeting your goals of your mission, right? We're not just going to make an award to small business if they can't meet the goals or if there's some other challenges that come with making those awards. So I, I think, you know, they want agencies to do market research. They want those that market research to include small firms uh, and specifically small firms potentially not even on multiple award contracts. And if they decide to use this specific vehicle, they should share that documentation with the agency small business specialist and give that person time to review and respond to a decision not to set it aside. So again, there's, there's a broad concept across is what what does this mean for small businesses when it, when you apply the rule of two and, and yes tom i think getting back to your point of whether or not this how this affects different segments of the industry of course it does but i think for a lot uh, they've seen such a decrease in the number of small businesses and not just in it not just in construction not just in architecture and engineering but across the board that that, that there's a lot of concern uh, both on Capitol Hill even and on and from the administration about what the small business supplier base looks like. It's always interesting. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. 
Always a pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. And later this hour, as we said, another perspective from longtime federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.